I think whether you've been working for 10 years or 20 years, everyone is always struggling with the idea of imposter syndrome. But I think if you just focus on what you're interested in and follow your curiosity, then you'll find something that feels meaningful to you and you'll end up producing better work in the end because you're more invested in it. Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pompat. Welcome, and on this episode, we have Sarah Higgins, an experienced designer from Patagonia. Prior to Patagonia, she's worked at several agencies, including AKQA, Struck, Instrument, and Huge. I'm actually quite familiar with AKQA and Huge, as some of my friends uh, went there. And also before that, Sarah was a design instructor at the School of Art Institute of Chicago, which I used to walk by all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Oh, you're you're very welcome. Well, uh, very enamored of the Patagonia brand and what it stands for. Tell us about your work there. Well, I started with Patagonia about six months ago, so I'm relatively new. And this is my first experience in-house. I left the agency world and looked for a brand that I could really, that could align with my ethics and my values. And I could feel good about working for, and I I feel like I found that with Patagonia. So my experience so far has largely been based around a restructuring that they've done during the course of the pandemic, I think. Like many other brands, they're realizing the need for a focus on in the retail space and in the storytelling space. So they've restructured themselves to put more emphasis into experience design and digital design. And that's where I came in and and why I was hired. So my time there has been spent helping them organize this new structure and create new systems of working and identify all the projects that we want to do together. So it's been all over the place and messy and beautiful and quite an experience so far. It's been a wild ride. Are there anything we can expect to see coming out in the public soon that you can talk about in terms of some of these experiences? Well, I think there's two parts of Patagonia. There's like the product side, which will be mostly like the e-com website experience. So a lot of experimentation going on there. Patagonia prides itself on being an unconventional business. And so they do the same (laughs) in the e-com space, which is interesting thinking about a space that's usually based in best practices. So we're exploring ways to take those best practices and potentially make them our own. So I bet if you go to the Patagonia website, on a regular basis, you'll see changes along the way. We're constantly trying out new things, testing, watching, measuring, and then iterating. And then also the other side of the business is based in storytelling and content. So there's a lot of writing and filmmaking going on. And we're doing a lot of experimentation and the best ways to tell our stories. So I think you'll see some innovation there as well. And now that physical spaces are open, the businesses and the stores, more events in physical space as well. So hopefully my dream is to like cross-pollinate live events with digital experiences as well. So that might be a little further down the road, but something I hope to do. 
Yeah, that it was going to be a good rabbit hole to click, double click into is, you know, how are retailers like Patagonia uh, dealing with the pandemic and what are they thinking of doing? And it sounds like experiences and live events is uh, one thing that they plan to do. Yeah, they've always done local events. Mm -hmm. Most of the stores are operated like at a local level. So whether it's like athletes coming in or authors talking about books that they've published with us, we're a book publishing company or like demoing things. They're they're always doing something. Warrenware is another big part of our business. So there's a lot of like pop-up activity. We just had our, our global marketing meeting and I was really impressed with some things the team in Japan has been doing with like pop-up stores for Warrenware. So you could be skiing down a mountain one day and see a little Warrenware pop-up at the, the base by the lodge, for example, where you can try out some new gear and like take it for a test run. So all sorts of live events outside of the digital space. Oh, very cool. Yeah. What, one, one of the most popular questions uh, that the audience likes to know is how you got started in design and how you got your first design job. Was your background in design? I started in fine art and photography. And then from there, evolved into working in book publishing quite randomly, but that was my introduction into design. After studying photography, I was working with a studio photographer and realized the hustle it would take to succeed as a freelance photographer. And I think my 22-year-old self, I was a little intimidated by that and just wanted a job where I could support myself, which was really important to me. So I found myself working in book publishing and that's where I was exposed to graphic design outside of my art school experience and ended up working with the book designers where I was working on like more production oriented and then was encouraged to go to graduate school to study design, which I did. And then that kind of opened up my whole world into teaching at the Art Institute, which you mentioned in Chicago, which was fabulous. And doing some freelance work and really getting exposed to like advertising, digital marketing, that whole area of our field. And then eventually landed a fellowship job in Washington state, which is what brought me out West. And that was a really like game-changing moment for me where I found myself moving further away from traditional graphic design, more into user experience design and thinking about how design is a tool to enable understanding and, and usability and ease of life. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you, you've covered the, the transition from, from graphic design to, to UX design. Could you talk about a little bit, you know, I think an interesting topic now that you're six months into in-house, but most of your time is spent on agency. What generally, what are some of the differences well, there's <laughs> there's a lot of differences. I think it's the whole change for me was inspired from my own personal experience during the pandemic and really questioning my relationship to work and life work balance. I I think this is something we all experienced and I think working at home has really changed our relationships to our jobs for better or worse. So when I was agency side it was a nice variety, which is what I always liked in the work of working with a bunch of different clients on various problems in various areas. 
but it was always very scattered and I never felt like I got to go very deep unless I was working with the same client for a long time. So one of the biggest changes outside of the lifestyle change that comes with shifting from the hustle of an agency world to in-house has been the ability to really like sink my teeth into the culture of a business and work from the inside out instead of the outside in. I think you have a different perspective of business goals, of how things operate internally, and a different perspective, a little bit of of the user. You're not always, at least for me, I'm not approaching the work so much as working for a client and needing to hit a certain mark or be impressive in a certain sort of way because they're my client. I am the client and I am the practitioner at the same time now. And I think that changes the way that I approach the work, if that makes sense. It does. It does. In in some ways, it alleviates some of that pressure of being the the external professional. Yeah. And I'm not... Yeah. I'm not sure how much of that is influenced by the culture of Patagonia since it is my first in-house experience. I've found like an embrace of experimentation and just being like really open-minded and very laid back about listening to different perspectives. And it, it makes the collaboration process more fluid, more accepting, and a little less of that pressure is felt, I think, because of those things. Yeah. Do you find that maybe some of the work when you were at an agency was also different? You know, sometimes, you know, when when you have clients, you know, I know you have clients like Google, Pinterest, and Nike and stuff that, you know, you don't always get, like here you, you get to work on probably the main core experience of Patagonia, whereas obviously Google, they're, you know, they have their own designers and you're probably not going to work on, you know, search or ads or anything you know, so core to their business, right? Or Pinterest, like their main feed or what have you. What, yeah, tell, tell us, you know, can you relate to what I'm speaking of? Like, did you experience where you're working? Did you feel like the work, agency work differs, is different than kind of the in-house work that way? Yes and no. I actually, as you were just speaking, I was realizing how lucky I've been in getting some pretty great projects. While I was at Instrument, I worked exclusively with Google for the majority of my time there. And we became sort of this arm of Google. So because my team, we were about 50 people, we were working on various projects and we were so embedded as part of in their company that we we would get to work on the really cool stuff. Like Ah. maybe not search, but certainly (laughs) some of our work appeared on google.com on like the search bar at times. But we we had some pretty high profile projects with them. And I think it was interesting because we were so embedded in the company um, and working with such a variety of different groups there that we would often be aware, sometimes more aware of what was going on across the company as the Googlers were the Google employees. And so I think that gave us a pretty big advantage at winning some of the the bigger work because we had a broad perspective of what was happening throughout the company. And then working with like Pinterest and and like Levi's, most of it was web-based work. So I will say being at Patagonia, I 
feel more part of the business, which is interesting. Like project-wise, I could be working on something that has to do with Patagonia.com, but I could also be working with our insights team on like research, or I could be working on something more like marketing campaign oriented in nature. So it's still a variety because Patagonia is so multifaceted and I wouldn't say it's better or worse. I think I was pretty lucky when I was that agency. I got, I got to work on some, some cool things that I'm certainly proud of. I I can relate to working in a client where, you know, sometimes the, the agency of the consultant, you know, because they have to navigate the, the, such a large organization, you kind of become more aware of what's going on. I think that's certainly the experience of, of my team as they navigate some of the, our larger clients, but who I can't necessarily name, <laughs> but, but they kind of, you know, because all the different business units don't necessarily talk to each other. I think they, they kind of become that conduit. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the nature of giant tech companies in particular. They become so big that it's difficult to keep up with what each team is doing within. So the agency can kind of serve as a liaison (laughs) among the different teams. And I feel a little bit of that on the experience team at Patagonia because I'm stretching across so many different teams. I do see a lot of what's happening and I can draw connections for people and bring the right people into the conversation, but it's usually related to whatever project I'm working on. Yeah. Yeah, I, f- I find that that really depends on yeah how how the design team is structured. If it's sort of a cross organization, then you they they get to see that, and then then the work of like things like design systems can can be really helpful. They can they have kind of the that broad view, whereas you know more kind of squad based teams of that are per org or business unit, then they kind of get that silo, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those silos can be dangerous. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it, things can move faster, right. And they're self-sufficient, but at the same time, they, they do have their pros and cons. Yeah. yeah. The perspective yeah. is key. I think and if you're siloed, you're really missing out on getting to have that step back and the perspective of how, whatever it is you're working on fits into a larger context. So you, you've been a design instructor for a while. I'd love to maybe see if you can provide some insights to maybe some of our younger listeners or who are just starting out in their design career. You know, what, what is some of the advice you give when you teach? And uh, yeah, what was some of the stuff? Yeah, well, I haven't taught in a number of years, but I have certainly worked with a <laughs> number of junior practitioners or for example, we Patagonia recently took part in like an Adobe Creative Jam. And part of the reward was meeting with the, the students that participated in that to, to ask questions. So I'm not going to pretend that I know what it's like to look for a job these days during a pandemic when everyone's working remote. However, the demand for our craft is quite high right now, which is very promising, I think, for, for recent grads. But always my, I think my biggest piece is of advice for young designers is to follow their curiosity. I think everyone struggles with like a little bit of, um, what is it called? The fake it till you make it the imposter syndrome. Yes. Imposter (laughs) syndrome. And I, everybody struggles with that. I think whether you've been working for 10 years or 20 years, everyone is always struggling with the idea of imposter syndrome. But I think if you just focus 
on what you're interested in and follow your curiosity, then you'll find something that feels meaningful to you and you'll end up producing better work in the end because you're more invested in it. So when I was working, when I was teaching at the Art Institute, I was so impressed with how passionate and curious um, and enthusiastic the students were. And I think because they were in the safety space of a school environment instead of a work environment, there was they were much more motivated to just explore and fail and make mistakes. And then once I was working with younger designers in a professional setting, I think the fear of making a mistake felt like a little bit more risky. The stakes were higher if like a client was depending on the work to be done or a superior who was in charge of the future of your career was watching you present. I saw a lot more nerve and a lot like nervousness and a lot less willingness to really put yourself out there and, and make a mistake. And I think that's tragic because it's often when we make mistakes that we learn something or that the work becomes better. So I would say follow your curiosity because it's going to find you the best place for you, not someone else. And don't be afraid to make mistakes, even in the professional setting. I think that's part of the creative process. So I would encourage people to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, to your first advice, I think there's a successful entrepreneur, Naval Ravikant. One of the things he says is, you know, do do things that feel like work to others, but it feels like play to you because then you can, you'll be more successful. You know, you can outlast it because when things go rough, but you, you're not passionate about it, you'll, you'll probably give up sooner. But, but if it's enjoyable and it's like play to you, then it'll just come naturally. Absolutely. I think that line between what is work and and what is fun or what is um, satisfying and fulfilling can be often blurry in the creative industry. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's rough when you're first trying to build up your resume and get professional experience. You can't quite be as choosy as you would like, but I think you can pay attention to your experiences. And if something feels fun or something feels like a slog, noting that for your next step so that you can find the best place for you or a really good place for you, a better place for you. Um, There's no end to that journey. There's no like ultimate job that you're going to stay in forever. (laughs) It's just like, doesn't happen. Um, But certainly you can progress to places that feel comfortable and right for you and, and fulfilling. Yeah. And to your point of failure, you're right. Some, well, some, some places, some environments, maybe not as accepting, or maybe the the social norm is, you know, there's higher stakes, and it can feel risky to to do something that's, you know, risky, and and and, and failure might might hurt your career. I think early on for me, I've always kind of had passion projects. I'm always dabbling, always playing, you know, whether it's in code or design. And I think my, my advice to, to others would be to, you know, find, find that place, that play where you, you can explore and it's a safe space because you're, you're just, uh, you know, exploring and playing. And if it's, you know, if it's not kind of directly related to work, if it fails, it's okay. You know? Yeah. 
I think options too options. in the professional environment work um, and something I like to practice so like with every ask in a professional space, if you have a client or otherwise, I translate experimentation into creating options. So if you get a brief, there's no one way of answering that brief. So what is a safe way? What's like a really wild, crazy way? And what's like something in the middle? I usually try to have like at least three. So that allows you to experiment and take a risk, but you're not going to fail because you have a backup plan. Yeah. Yeah. Do you create options? So you steer the choice to one? (laughs) Of course. Of course. I'm very strategic in which one I present first and last. I'll argue one, I'll validate my, the, the one I think is the best option. I'll spend more time arguing the validation behind it. Yeah. And I'll certainly encourage or just say flat out, this is what I would recommend doing. And this is why you always have to say, this is why you can't just say, cause it's cool. And right. cause I say so, but yeah, for sure. I always have something that I want to do, but then the realities of your client or stakeholder subjective opinion or time or budget always comes into play. So design is always a series of compromises. I feel in the professional space, but yeah, that's a, a real, yeah. Th- thanks for saying that. That's a reality that a lot of us have to keep in mind that is not always apparent. I, I think people come into this practice, you know, wanting to, you know, design the Lamborghini, but, but if the timeline or the budget doesn't allow for it, you can still do it, but that, that would, <laughs> it, it would be tough to do, you know? Um, yeah, it's coming out of somewhere. Do you face that, you know, you know, having not this. So the difference between you and me is I've, I've never, well, that's not true. I was in house very briefly, but you know, do, do you have, what sort of constraints do you face uh, in house? The same constraints I faced in agency life, honestly, biggest ones being budget time and technical capabilities. And I actually am feeling that more in-house because we have such a set set group of tools that we use. We're now married to them and it's difficult to break outside of using what we use to do things that maybe the things we use now are not capable of pulling off. So I feel like that's been a constant pullback. I think also thinking about resources, Patagonia's digital team is still very small. So there's only so many of us, there's three experienced designers, seven developers, and we're trying to do a lot. And so often one of the biggest limitations I face is, is time and like human resource to do the things that we want. But yeah, I still face all the same constraints and sometimes constraints can be great because it makes me think more creatively and solutioning and sometimes it's just a really big bummer because <laughs> you, <laughs> you want to do something and you can't yeah um, right you're just spinning a real bummer into oh you know constraints are good but it really sucks that's <laughs> what I really start to appreciate how our field has begun to adopt like a product design methodology and working iteratively and in phases so that often is a tool that I use to work up to my ultimate vision and in a very slow drawn out way, but eventually working towards what I think that the best experience would be, even if it's not possible to do straight yeah. out of the gate. 
Uh, well, given the constraints that you have, you know, I didn't realize uh, such a small team, given, you know, uh, my, mm-hmm. I guess, perception of such a big brand, global brand, I figured it'd be bigger. Do you like find yourself having to do cut corners or are you able to feel feel like you're, you're doing everything that you can to, to, you know, follow a good design process or do, do all the things you, you need to do, like user research or the testing, A-B testing, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, I'm getting to do all of that, which is fantastic. fantastic. And I'm really a- appreciative of, of getting to do things right. I mean, I see it as my job to bring the user's perspective and, and not cut corners and creating yeah. the, the best experience for them. Like I'm the user advocate. So I'm going to do whatever I can. And making compromises, it's less about compromising the user experience and more compromising like the fidelity of the experience. Mm. So from like the cool factor or maybe like more of like the marketing side of my heart, like it hurts to make those compromises, <laughs> but but I'm not ever going to at the root compromise, like the usability of something. Of course, yeah. Um, and I think it's just like, a, it's going to be a slow progressive journey with Patagonia because we are really small and it is a really big global brand and one that we want to like, grow like the department we want to grow over time so that we have more capabilities to do more but it's going to be slow it kind of feels like it's a really big ship and I'm like pushing it and trying to steer it in another direction with like two other people and so that's going to take a really long time yeah so we'll just keep chipping away at the constraints and make them smaller and smaller and smaller until they don't exist. I mean, they're always going to exist, but maybe they're less constraining. For such a small team, how are you handling, you know, the the load of, I'm sure the design you you have to design for a global audience. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, luckily for better or worse, I guess, luckily for me and my workload, I focus predominantly on North America because Patagonia is a California-based company and most of the business does take place in North America. Most of our um, global teams use North America as as the base to like set the tone. And then we figure out how to translate that into our global market. So if we're working on a campaign that depends on an experience on the platform that we use in North America, maybe like Japan uses something totally different. And so we have to figure out how to replicate the experience for them. Like they're going to do it, but we need to help them figure out how so we can uphold the experience that we want everyone to have, regardless of where you are in the world. So it's a lot of teamwork and thinking about how to efficiently do the same project in like four different ways on four different platforms. Yeah. It's not the messiest. (laughs) It's not the cleanest process right now. It is very... Messy, but that's something that we want to help streamline over time. Yeah. It's always interesting when we talk about global design because design sensibilities vary from culture to culture, right? So in some Mm -hmm. cultures, I think I would say Western or North American culture values, clean, simple, a lot of white space design, right? Versus maybe some cultures value more dense information like they don't want to click a lot and they want all the information to be there or text Mm -hmm. you know are there you know well 
maybe in your agency life in, in the past and then also in the present, it, you know, have you, what is your, you know, what feedback do you have on that? <laughs> I It's come across my plate more so in visual language and particularly like photography, like what does an image say to me versus someone living on the other side of the world based on your cultural upbringing, you could interpret an image in, in a lot of different ways. So being really sensitive to that, I had it come up the most there. And then this is less like regional, but I think accessibility like is, is big no matter where you are. So I think more about that than I do about cultural interpretation or styles or trends. Yeah. In, in my world. So if I'm working on something that's really dependent on sound, what does that mean for the hearing impaired? And how do we make sure that they can have a really great experience with whatever we're designing as well? Yeah. I'm thinking about a lot of those things. It's a little bit of a different topic, but to me related. Yeah. When this is a, an anecdotal piece of data that I've kind of observed with accessibility, certain countries, I guess, you know, I I would say a lot of the apps are designed very, you know, Western or Eurocentric, right? Like these are tech companies in California, let's be honest, right? And phone companies, tech companies kind of concentrated there. So the design sensibilities, I noticed in some countries, a lot of people have the accessibility features turned on by default. Because, you know, the, I guess the, maybe the interface or the the layout is just not as conducive, uh, especially maybe when a language may have more than, you know, just take, take Thai, for example, we, we, we don't have 24 characters, we have 36 cons, you know, like 44 right. consonants and 18 vowels. It's, it's a lot, you know, so the standard keyboard on a phone is just it's okay, but it's not great. <laughs> so, and, and thus, and, and the, all the other implications that go along with that. So I, I've noticed even when I'm out there that a lot of people have accessibility features on just because it makes the accessing apps and inputting or uh, much more easy. Yeah. And I think, I don't know why we don't prioritize accessibility in the design in the first place and have to have a switch that you have to turn on to experience something maybe that's just it's like a technical hurdle and i don't know why the u.s doesn't prioritize it more than these other countries that you're experiencing these apps in. i don't know if there needs to be like (laughs) a set of like design standards i mean there are design standards but like enforcement of following them i'm not sure how to get around this and i don't know why we're not following them to begin with. If it's like, it takes extra time, it takes extra budget, it t- takes ex- extra resources and like QA. Yeah. I'm not sure what the the excuse is, but it's just, it's not excusable. <laughs> like we just it's it's to- a challenge. Uh, yeah. And it's an interesting, answer, just an observation of mine that, you know, it, And it does definitely seem to be a design problem and maybe, you know, a priority problem, maybe certain markets, it's just not, not big enough to warrant, you know, a whole exercise, right? You, you get English, right. You cover a good chunk of the world, you get Spanish, Mm -hmm. right. You get a good chunk of the world, you know, 
so on and so forth. Yeah. 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 I hope that changes though. <laughs> I think it's kind of lazy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, yeah. Especially if you have the resources, of a yeah. big, big company, but I mean, even then, right. Like you can't generalize like Patagonia. If, you know, maybe I came into this call expecting Patagonia to have a huge design team, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they have a huge product design team. I mean, oh, if you course, think yeah. about Pat- Patagonia's history and their roots has been product. Yeah. So that team is, is quite large. Digital is still, newish to Patagonia like they've had a website for a long time but it hasn't been a huge priority for the brand as as far as what I understand until recently I mean I think you you have to be digitally relative relevant and they realize that as well so it's becoming more emphasis and I think that's why the team is still so small Right. So we have like digital studio is where I sit in a team of like experienced designers and digital designers and developers. There's also creative studio, like retail marketing experience. And then there's one more, I think it's like another like marketing team. I get brand and business impact and all four of us sit under um, an umbrella title of storytelling and impact. So together, these four different areas of the company come together under storytelling and impact. And so that's what we're tasked with doing. So it's, it's going to grow over time, the digital branch of the company, I, I believe if, if we're successful, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure we will be. Do you have any resources or books or anything like that you recommend in, as far as go-to uh, design-wise? Yeah, design wise, like visual design wise, I I love looking at, at examples. Like when I'm beginning, um, like an ideation process. Like once I've created discovery and I have a little bit better idea of like the brief that I want to write to to give to a team. I look at awards a lot. I think there's a lot of really interesting things happening in that space that's updated daily. So I always see something new for research. I look at Baymard quite a bit value, like the reports and the research that they have there. How do I spell that? Baymard. Oh, Baymard. Yeah. B-A-Y-M-A-R-D. They have, you can have, I think they have some reports that are accessible for free and you can also have a membership and and gain like access to, to more. We recently hired them to do an audit of our full site just for a moment of, of humbling, like reporting on everything that we could improve upon as far as like best practices and standards are concerned. Like they're the masters of, of, what is considered a best practice because they're looking like across the whole industry. So I, I reference them quite a bit. And then I just pay attention. I mean, I am an internet user and I use websites and apps a lot. So I'm always paying attention to whatever it is I'm using. I find inspiration all, all around me when I'm on a device. And then too, I think I look at outside experiences. Like we've been talking a lot this week at work, um, about product storytelling and like how our products have stories to tell and how do we tell them. And I'm thinking a lot about going into physical retail spaces and how products are, have stories when you're there, be it as, as simple as having, you know, a whole outfit put together on a mannequin. 
and maybe insinuating that that outfit is meant to do a certain activity like rock climbing. What are the stories that we can tell and what can what can I learn from physical spaces that can help influence a digital space? So even when I'm not on a device, I'm, I'm looking all over the place and finding inspiration everywhere. So it's it's a very interesting to work for a brand that also is not a purely digital compared to maybe stuff that maybe I work lean towards as you know more pure SaaS companies. Yeah, do you do you spend time at the retail stores and do that kind of field field research? Uh, I haven't gone to a store to do research yet, but when I'm shopping in their stores, I'm doing research. It is hard for me to turn my work brain off if I'm in a Patagonia store. But it is something that I would love to do more of, of um, like observing how people shop in physical spaces, talking more to the, the people that work in those stores about their experiences. And I haven't had the opportunity to do this yet, but my boss has, and I would really like to do it as well, is going to Reno to talk to our customer service team. Um, they are amazingly brilliant people when it comes to everything you could possibly know about the brand. And they talk to so many people. I feel like they're our um, best bridge to users. So if I don't get to talk to users themselves, I could just go be a fly on the wall in their office and learn so much. They send, send out weekly reports and that's like gold to me. That's like my my lifeline to the users that we're designing for. So I would love to do some of that as well. Yeah, yeah, great, great customer service. They can be a really great proxy for the voice of the user. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that 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 was really insightful as well. That was a great way to maybe kind of end end on this note of a little nugget of insight. But Sarah, thank you so much, and uh, we'll link to some of those resources, awards, and being. Baynard to Baynard to to the audience as well. How do you? How do people get in touch with you? Um, let's see. I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> you can just search for me on LinkedIn. I am on Instagram, but I actually stopped using it recently. I still look at it sometimes, but I'm doing a little digital detox experiment these days since I work so closely with tech. It's been, I, I encourage everybody to do it. It's been cool to see how my behaviors are changing, but certainly hit me up on, on LinkedIn would be great. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I recently forgot about Facebook for a while and, and it was fine. <laughs> you, you survived. I can survive without documenting everything I do for Instagram yeah. stories. Like, who yeah. knew? Who right. knew? Right. It's been um, nice. Thank, yeah, it's, it's, it's been nice. I, I can relate. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I had a great time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX? If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guests and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one. <laughs>